the Preventing Canadians from Unsafe Drugs Act, also known as Vanessa's Law, has empowered Canada's Federal Minister of Health to recall a drug from the market when he or she believes that it presents a serious or imminent risk of injury to health. Could the law be used to good effect to curb Canada's opioid crisis? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with the two authors of a commentary published in CMAJ that calls on the Federal Minister of Health to recall high-strength opioid formulations from the Canadian market. Matthew Herder is the Director of the Health Law Institute and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Dr. David Jerlink is staff internist and head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. They're joining me today to discuss their commentary. Welcome, Matthew and David. Happy to be here. Hi there. So let's begin with introductions. Can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are? Matthew, you go first. I'm the director of the Health Law Institute at Dalhousie University and also an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Dal as well. Uh, My training is exclusively in law. Um, I'm a specialist in internal medicine and clinical pharmacology and toxicology at the University of Toronto. I'm also the head of the division here. I look after hospitalized inpatients with a host of drug-related problems and and was, in fact, a pharmacist for five years um, in Nova Scotia in the early 90s. Thanks, David. Matthew, let's have a bit of background. What is Vanessa's Law and why do we have it? Vanessa's Law is a law that was passed by Parliament in 2014, really as a result of the tireless efforts of a former member of Parliament, Terence Young, whose daughter, Vanessa, Uh, who the law is named after, obviously, uh, passed away from a drug-related adverse event in the early 2000s. Um, He really worked tirelessly to ensure the bill was introduced and ultimately passed by Parliament. And it includes a number of safety-related provisions, things ranging from measures designed to improve the transparency of our regulatory system, but also other powers like the one that's the focus of our commentary that gives the Federal Minister of Health the power to recall drugs from the Canadian market when certain uh, circumstances warrant that kind of measure. So David, take us through exactly what you're calling for in this commentary. Well, what Matthew and I are calling for is we're we're asking the Federal Minister of Health to exercise the power uh, accorded to her under the Food and Drugs Act and to remove from the Canadian market the highest strength opiate formulations available in Canada. So that's going to include products containing morphine in um, amounts of 100 milligrams or more, uh, oxycodone 80 milligrams or more, hydromorphone. 20, 24, 30 milligram uh, capsules, and fentanyl patches with 75 or 100 mics per hour um, in the patches. Now, it's a really bold call. Do high-strength opioid formulations meet the conditions for recall as set out in the law? Well, the the law actually sets um, a particular threshold for invoking this recall power, And it's that the Minister of Health, the Federal Minister of Health, has to, quote, believe that a therapeutic product, which would include the kinds of drugs that uh, Dave just mentioned, um, that they present a serious or imminent risk of injury to health. So a couple of things that are important to highlight in that threshold. First, it's not that the minister has to be certain in a scientific sense 
um, that a therapeutic product uh, presents that kind of risk of injury. They simply have to believe. Um, and in some of the cases that have happened in Canadian courts to date, where this issue of recall, not this particular power around drugs, but recall of foods, for example, from the market, courts have said that doesn't mean the standard of believing there's a risk. Does it mean certainty, as I just said? It just means there has to be some evidence that such a risk exists. Secondly, it's also important to note that in the threshold that the Nessa's law sets out, which is incorporated into our Food and Drugs Act, it doesn't say that the risk has to be serious and imminent, as in it's about to occur in time, but rather that it is serious or imminent. And so that's different than other kinds of standards that physicians, for example, might be familiar with. If a physician, for example, becomes aware that there might be a risk to a third party, a patient they're treating expresses a desire to do harm to someone else, they sometimes they have a duty to warn because that risk is serious, it's to an identifiable person, and assuming this is the case, it's imminent in the sense in that the person is threatening to do it reasonably soon in time. And so in this case, the standard is different. It can be serious or imminent. Uh, it doesn't have to be a risk that's close in time. It actually can be something that might happen down the road. Okay, so I want to unpack this um, this idea of, of serious risk, serious health risk in a little depth. How mm. does Health Canada define serious risk and how do high-strength opioids, by this definition, pose a serious risk to health? in your opinion? Right. So the legislation uh, that Parliament enacted really just gives that language that I just rehearsed in terms of believing there's a serious or imminent risk to, to health. Um, it doesn't say anything more particular about what exactly is a serious health risk. But Health Canada, our regulator, has set out in a policy document three kinds of considerations that it thinks are relevant to determining whether there is a serious risk in a given case. Those three considerations are the seriousness, not surprisingly, of the adverse health consequence or risk to injury, uh, or risk of injury to health that you're worried about. Secondly, the vulnerability of the patient population exposed to the drug and therefore the risk it poses. And thirdly, the extent of the population's exposure. So, Dave, I don't know if you want to jump in and expand on some yeah. of those criteria there. Yeah. So, on the on the latter point about the extent of population exposure, I mean, we see fewer patients on high dose opioids than we did say five or ten years ago, but there are still tens of millions of tablets or patches um, dispensed each year in Canada, and we still see with some regularity people who are on you know, the equivalent of two, three, four, five hundred milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day. On the seriousness front, I guess it's worth sort of stepping back for a little bit and sort of acknowledging that, like most drugs, all of the side effects of opioids are dose-dependent, right? The, the, the more you take, the more uh, side effects you can expect. And, and that's why the new guideline, uh, actually two new guidelines, the Canadian guideline released last year and the CDC guideline in the U.S. released the year beforehand, strongly suggest that when you start a patient on opioids that you avoid escalating more uh, to doses above 90 milligrams or more per day. And I think it's important to sort of look in the rearview mirror a little bit here. It was nothing, you know, 10, 15 years ago to have patients with chronic pain who, you know, they might be on, let's say, OxyContin, 10 or 20 milligrams twice a day. And over months or sometimes years, they would 
progressively increased the dose, and it was routine to see people on extraordinarily high doses. And we thought that was the right thing to do. We did it because um, it was. Uh, it, it seemed like, in fact, we were taught that the that the thing to do in the face of the waning effectiveness of opioids was just to increase the dose. And there was no ceiling dose, and and so on. Um, we now know, with the benefit of 20 years of hindsight, that that's not a good idea. And that's why the new guidelines say what they say. And, and they've been assailed on this um, front by, by people who, um, some clinicians, but quite a number of patients who uh, think that these dose limits are somewhat arbitrary or not based on good science. It's not true. Um, you know, the goal of treating pain isn't just to relieve the pain. It's to sort of balance the benefits and the harms and afford the patients more benefits than harms. And, and if you accept the fact that the harms are dose-dependent, which they are, of course are, then you have to confront the fact that these formulations that we're talking about in this commentary uh, deliver between 200 and 400 milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day, you know, more or less, um, when taken as intended. So in, if someone's um, you know, on, say, a fentanyl 100 microgram patch, they're getting somewhere in the vicinity of 400 milligrams of morphine a day, you know, give or take. They, by definition, they exceed by more than fourfold the suggested dose limit from new guidelines. And, uh, and it's very easy to make the case that those people are being harmed more than helped by their therapy. Now, they, well, they very often hold a different opinion, but, um, and, and part of the reason this is so challenging is because the, Side effects of opioids are sometimes hard to divine, right? I mean, every doctor knows that opioids are constipating and they're sedating, and if you take too much, you can have an overdose. But there are, there are a whole host of harms that I think often go unattributed to the medications, sleep apnea and hormonal problems, endocrinopathies and depression, and in some patients, hyperalgesia, an actual worsening of the pain. But if I was to pick one and label it the most pernicious, it would be physical dependence. And this is this is a very complicated and challenging issue. But um, the idea, and this is why they're so vulnerable, which actually ties into the third point. Um, you know what Health Canada considers as part of its determination of serious. Um, and maybe we could talk about that for a little bit because I think that the whole phenomenon of physical dependence is is widely appreciated to exist. But what isn't often appreciated is how harmful it is and how um, and how it causes people to stay on drugs like these and, and the higher the dose the more likely that is so this is you're talking to the points of vulnerability and and as you've alluded to some patients don't see themselves as being vulnerable in the sense well I think they do see themselves as being vulnerable in the sense that they need the medications that they're taking. So let me give you a sort of a contrived scenario of a fellow who's on, we'll say, just to make it a, um, we'll say 500 milligrams of morphine a day for chronic pain. It will be the case that he got to that dose by virtue of the successive failure of lower doses. Like no one starts on 500 a day. Like he would have gotten over the course of many months or probably years to a dose like that. And because, as I said before, the, the side effects are a function of the dose, it's, you know, it's very easy to make the argument that here's a guy who's being harmed more than helped, um, because if he was being helped by the drugs, he wouldn't have had to escalate to that kind of dose. Now, why is he vulnerable? He's vulnerable because if you take that dose, that 500 dose, and take it away or, or, or cut it down to 90 for argument's sake because you've misread or misapplied the guideline, that person will go into 
um, horrible opioid withdrawal. And that will manifest as pain, withdrawal-related pain. It's a, it's a well-described phenomenon. It'll manifest as loss of function. It'll manifest as insomnia, as misery. I mean, it might even manifest as suicidality. And uh, so I think I need to make the point that um, no one is saying these patients don't need to be on these doses. They, For sure, they do. But they don't need them because the drugs are continuing to, to affect pain relief or to, to do what the doctor who originally prescribed them um, set out to do. They need them. So they're not going into withdrawal, which is a manifestation of dependence. I mean, dependence is defined by the development of withdrawal when the drug's taken away. So what you've really got in this, this scenario of the man who's on 400 milligrams of morphine a day is a fellow who does in fact need his medications and might perceive them to be to be effective, but what they're really being effective at is preventing withdrawal, which is itself a side effect of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, and I wrote a commentary in CMAJ about a, a year ago on this entitled Rethinking Doing Well on Chronic Opioid Therapy, and it asked doctors to think a bit um, to think a bit more deeply. Don't just take the anecdote of benefit at face value and, and consider the pharmacology behind the anecdote. And it is clearly the case that people on these extraordinary doses will be vulnerable because without them, they'll go into withdrawal. And um, and for many of these people, uh, they will stay on these drugs for the rest of their lives, um, uh, it, which may in fact be shortened by the fact that they're on high doses to begin with. In your commentary, you outline step-by-step how the legal requirements of Section 21.31 of um, Vanessa's law are clearly met. But what about the potential negative consequences of a ministerial recall that may give the minister some pause in thinking about this? Could it lead to abrupt tapering of opioids, perhaps? Um, and withdrawal, as you said, is is pretty horrible, pretty dangerous. I, I mean, I think... We're worried about that. We recognize that removing these drugs from the Canadian market could have that unintended consequence. Um, it might also pose challenges in terms of convenience, in terms of what we might call a pill burden, in terms of patients who no longer can access these uh, higher strength formulations and therefore have to take uh, two pills instead of one, for example, to, to maintain their current level of of these um, these active ingredients. Um, so those are ser- concerns that we want to take very seriously, um, and we think they can be guarded against if this recall were to be pursued. Yeah, I mean, I think there, the the pill burden is one thing. I guess we can maybe chat about that separately if you like. The uh, I think the bigger concern is the concern of withdrawal. So the fellow who's on, let's say, a 100-microgram fentanyl patch, and let's say that the 75 and 100-microgram patches were removed from the market, um, that patient's doctor, you know, the worst case scenario is the patient's doctor would just say, I'm sorry, not available, you're now in the 50s. And that is exactly what we do not want to happen. That patient could just simply apply to 50 microgram patches and be on the same dose. And it's really important that we be clear that this proposal, if implemented, must not destabilize people on high doses of opioids. That is never a good idea. As bad as an idea as being on high dose of opioid therapy is the only thing worse is destabilizing these patients and pulling the rug out from under them and cutting their dose too quickly. I can't say that enough. So I think that would be the most dangerous consequence, and it's, I think that's circumventable by clear communications in, uh, to pharmacies and to patients and to physicians in advance and, and deploying it in a thoughtful way. If we give patients the same dose and more pills, they can find that quite burdensome. What would you say to patients who say, I don't want to have two patches or 14 pills? 
Well, I mean, I guess how awful is it really to take, if someone's taking one pill twice a day, is it that big a deal to take two pills twice a day rather than one pill twice a day? Or I suppose to apply two patches rather than one. Um, I don't think, I don't, I'm not really swayed by that argument. I think it's fair to say it's an inconvenience, um, but it's a minor one in the big picture. And I, 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 I would say that the, that the inconvenience to patients of the issue of pill burden is easily offset by the societal benefit of what we propose here, of removing from the market these specific formulations that promoted what I would say is a dangerous and frankly antiquated practice, the, the use of hundreds of milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day in patients with chronic pain. Okay, so let's go back, and I'm going to play devil's advocate, and I'm going to say, what about patients who do say they're doing well on high-dose opioids? Won't they and their doctors be up in arms at your suggestion that this recall take place? Well, they, they might well be up in arms. Um, and I want to be clear, we're not saying that these patients have to have their doses reduced at all. They can keep, they can stay on their doses. Um, they can, if, if a physician has escalated a patient to, just for argument, take a thousand milligrams of morphine a day, um, he or she can keep their patient on that dose just with a, with different formulations. People sometimes get, well, not sometimes, actually quite a lot. I, we get a lot of hostility when we talk about um, the concept of high-dose opioids being a, a harmful thing. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the most challenging discussions uh, a doctor can have with a patient, I have to say. Uh, um, so I, I guess I would make the point, first of all, that we're not asking these patients to have their doses cut, um, but we are saying that from a societal perspective, it makes sense not to have these extraordinarily high doses, which, by the way, got on the market despite an absence of good studies showing that they should be on the market in the first place. Um, we're just saying that those drugs should be removed, and uh, we're not, you know, we're not saying patients should have their doses uh, tapered. I think it actually would be helpful, you know, if if this were to be implemented, and patients would be, I can see a patient in his or her doctor's office, you know, talking about the issue, and they might elect to stay on the same dose, but it might also serve as an opportunity for the patient and doctor to have a discussion about what the goals of care are, um, and to discuss the the possible merits of a very gradual taper at the patient's pace, which I think doesn't get considered often enough. Now, the opioid crisis in Canada has, has a lot of facets. For example, we haven't talked about diversion, and you don't talk about that in, in your article. Do you think that this drastic action of recall of high-strength opioid formulations can actually help the opioid crisis? We're hopeful. One of the things that's really important to stress is that we see this action as one action amongst many that uh, need to be pursued, several of which in Canada, at least, are actually already occurring. Um, and one of the most important sort of complements to a recall, if it is to occur, is to track what actually happens, to see um, if, if some of the unintended consequences that we name uh, potentially occur and then think hard about how best to manage those at a system level and then both at a, a physician-patient level as well. Um, but obviously to pay attention to whether the removal of these products might create issues of diversion. Um, we think because of the focus on harm reduction in several Canadian jurisdictions, hopefully um, that won't occur. Uh, there are good reasons to believe that uh, 
the opioid crisis in Canada continues in part to be a problem of supply, um, and the overprescribing of these higher strength formulations is a big part of that. So we see this as one of several strategies that need to be deployed. Um, the, the minister or the former minister of health at federally has used language of all tools being on the table. So we're calling in this article for this additional tool that no one is talking about for it to be strongly considered. And we think on balance, it stands to help. Uh, we have to wait and see. First, if the minister is willing to act, and then secondly, of course, how it actually operates in practice if this uh, recall power that's in place in Canadian law is finally invoked for the first time. Yeah, I can just expand that a little bit. I mean, I think the opioid crisis, I mean, people mean different things when they invoke that term. To me, the crisis has two main elements. Uh, the first is addiction, and the second is pain, and it's management or sometimes it's mismanagement. And these are distinct but uh, somewhat overlapping issues. And um, the most pressing, of course, is the is the issue of addiction and people dying in you know by the thousands from a poisoned drug supply. And uh, what we're proposing here isn't going to help those patients. What they need, what people with addictions need, is much greater access to opioid agonists like buprenorphine and, and methadone and, and qualified addiction care and supervised consumption sites and naloxone and, frankly, a, a, a rethink of our drug laws. You know, we may want to ask ourselves whether it makes sense to criminalize the use of drugs and to arrest people for using drugs. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't. I mean, drug use is a health issue, and if we treated it as a health issue rather than a criminal issue um, and offered people help rather than prison and all of the negative consequences that come with it, um, that would go quite a long way to addressing the addiction element of the crisis. But on the pain front, you know, I've watched this unfold for the better part of 30 years now since I was a pharmacist and pharmacy student. Um, we use opioids. We think about opioids differently in 2018 than we did in 1998 or, or 2008. And I think one of the things, Matthew touched on the supply side. I mean, the supply and demand aspects, there are, there are, there are two elements to this. But I think it's really important that we, as clinicians start to use opioids more thoughtfully than we have for the past 20 years. They are important drugs, but I think we have to start them less readily and prescribe smaller initial quantities. You know, giving people 60 Percocet after a dental extraction just doesn't make sense, or an ankle injury does not make sense. But importantly, and more to the point of this commentary, we have to resist the urge to just Escalate doses when lower doses aren't doing the job. And millions of people in North America have been harmed by this practice. And it's explicitly facilitated by the ongoing availability of these formulations. So I think uh, there, there are, there's no one intervention that's going to fix the crisis. Many things need to be done, and we need a massive societal investment in addiction care and also in pain and its pain management. Um, but one of the things we have to stop doing is, is escalating patients to these unjustifiably high doses and, and and removing these formulations from the market will will help us do that. Well, this is a very thoughtful commentary and you make a powerful argument in favor of taking regulatory action. I hope that the Minister of Health is listening. Thanks for joining me today, Matthew and Dave. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you. I've been speaking with Matthew Herder, Director of the Health Law Institute and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and David Yearlink, Staff Internist and Head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. 
To read the controversial commentary they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>